Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith, and I'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. You know, here at Ministry Watch, we bring you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, all designed to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. Regular listeners to the program know that uh, each week uh, we do a Friday episode. I do that with Natasha Smith. It's kind of a recap of the news of the week. But we've also started doing these Ministry Watch Extra episodes that uh, we post uh, midweek. These are episodes that uh, you might say allow us to go deep with some, one of our editorial partners. And today I'm really pleased to have back on the program Michael Renault. Uh, Michael, whenever he was on the program back in August with us, was the deputy editor of World Magazine. But Michael, today you're the editor. You got a promotion. Congratulations. Thanks very much, Warren. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you bet. And and just a little bit of background. Before coming to World, he was an award-winning editor at the Greenville Sun, a daily newspaper serving East Tennessee. So, Michael, great to have you back. And, uh, you know, because it has been a while um, since you've been on, there's really a lot of stories uh, to talk about. I'd like to kind of do a lightning round with you with some of the stories that World has done. And specifically, uh, I want to spend a few minutes today talking about World's approach uh, to some of these stories. Uh, because, you know, it's, some of these stories that involve scandal, uh, it's kind of hard to know uh, whether you should report on them and when you should report them. So I'm going to get your perspective on that. But let's begin with a story that you did for World. It's a story about uh, Liberty University and, and a little bit of background here. A lot of people know about Jerry Falwell Jr.'s problems uh, at Liberty University, that, that he posted an Instagram photo of himself with a woman who was not his wife, and that sort of began uh, sort of a whole series of events that ultimately resulted in Jerry Falwell Jr. leaving Liberty University. But Michael, you'd been covering that story for a long time and had been looking into some of the real estate transactions that um, Jerry Jr. and some of his family members had been involved with. Um, can you tell us about some of your coverage? Sure. Well, as you said, in, in late August, a lot of things regarding Jerry Falwell Jr. and Liberty University came to a head when he resigned on August 25th. The days that followed after were filled with a lot of news reports. I mean, his his resignation was precipitated by a, a one particular story from Reuters outlining uh, an extramarital affair his wife, Becky Falwell, had had with a pool attendant at a luxury hotel in Miami. So a lot of things have been swirling regarding the Falwells and Liberty for for quite some time. And again, it all came to a head in late August. I had been working on a few different aspects of a story regarding uh, the Falwells and, and Liberty University. And Falwell Jr.'s resignation in late August really set a lot of things in motion. For starters, some of the scandals that he had been involved in, some of the news stories that he had been at the center of in the preceding months really raised a lot of questions from Liberty University alumni, probably from some, from some donors, from Christians and, and just Americans in general, about what kind of watch Liberty's Board of Trustees was keeping over Jerry Falwell Jr. as the president of the university. So in our September 26th issue of World, um, I wrote a story 
that got at some of the structures in place and how the how Liberty's Board of Trustees is governed. Um, there's a there's a very powerful executive committee that really does the lion's share of the work for that Board of Trustees. And so tried to unpack, um, as you have pointed out before uh, as well, Warren, there are some governance issues going on there where um, really the board probably should have been keeping a better watch on some of the public statements Jerry Fowler Jr. had made, even outside of the stuff about his wife's affair and so forth, that just weren't happening. And so a lot of folks were raising a lot of questions about that part of the situation. Well, let me, um, Michael, let me interrupt you there for a second, because uh, I've got a couple of questions. You talk about the questions being raised. Well, I've got a couple of them, and I'm just wondering what your perspective is. Num- number one, um, you know, Jerry did, Jerry Jr. did ultimately leave, but um, that board is more or less in place. So I guess my first question is, um, can there be any real change if there if the if the problem was at the board level and there have been no real changes of board members is the problem just going to repeat itself well i think that's the 64 million dollar question right there um, and that's why there's a group called save 71 it's a it's an activist group of alumni from liberty who are really calling for um, monumental change when it comes to the the board of trustees. The board has 32 people sitting on it. And a lot of those folks, um, I went back and, and went through some, some old records. A lot of those folks on that board were in place, even while Jerry Falwell Sr. was still alive. He died in May to, uh, 2007. So a lot of these folks have been on the board for a long time. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but there is a certain amount of complacency that can bubble up when you've got board members who are there for a long time. Um, but groups like Save 71 want to see new board members in place. And, and really one of the big questions here is, and I, I talked to a couple of folks in higher education circles um, for my story, but really one of the big questions here is, the, the full board is made up of 32 people. There's an executive committee on that board that's, I forget the number offhand, but it's fewer than 10 people on that executive committee. And that executive committee really is holding all the cards when it comes to holding the president's feet to the fire. The rest of the board of trustees doesn't see the, the president's employment contract for that matter. Um, they don't they don't know how that back and forth works between the president and his representation versus the executive committee and negotiating those things. And so it's really, even though there's a 32 member board, if whoever the president of Liberty University is can really get just a handful of those board of trustee members in his pocket, so to speak, um, he can get a lot of cover. And so that, Warren, your question is the question to ask. Will change actually happen? Will Liberty's board of trustees try to hold uh, their president's feet to the fire as they move on and they've said they're they're initiating a, a nationwide search for their next president? Right. Well, I have another question, Michael, that I would like for you to weigh in on. And it might, you know, uh, require an opinion, at least in part. But, but uh, part of the question is a factual question. Liberty University said that they were going to hire an outside firm to do an investigation, a forensic investigation of the entire tenure of Jerry Falwell Jr. So my factual question for you is, have you heard the name of that firm? Do you know who they actually fired, uh, hired to do this investigation? No, I don't think I don't many either. people. Yeah, I don't think many people outside of Liberty's 
uh, ecosystem know who that firm is. And when I talked to their, um, when I talked to Liberty's VP of communications, Scott Lamb, he said, look, we're not trying to keep it a secret, but we're going to let the firm announce that that's been over a month now. There's been plenty of time for that firm to get in place and get those pieces in place and still no word about who that firm is. And therefore there's, it's really hard to say what kind of investigation will result from that. Well, I think that's a, a really great point is that it, it is hard to say. And the other thing, too, is that when you're talking about a forensic investigation of a sophisticated organization, it's a billion-dollar-a-year organization uh, or nearly a billion dollars a year in revenue, uh, going back more than 10 years, uh, that investigation is going to probably take months and cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, it does cause you to wonder how independent an, a firm can be unless it's a big firm that you know a hundred thousand dollars or two hundred or three hundred thousand dollars in fees doesn't make a difference to them. I just I'm just very very concerned, and I you know I'm not afraid to say so out loud that um, that this firm is just going to give uh, Liberty's board of trustees what it wants to hear. Yeah, I don't think that's an unfounded concern more at all. Um, you know, again, the reason that organizations like Ministry Watch exist, the reason that organizations like World exist. Um, I've done reporting previously about the uh, Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability, as you have too in, in your book, Warren. Um, the reason that organizations like this exist um, is supposed to be a watchdog. You know, ECFA hasn't done a very good job of that over the years, but the reason that independent media organizations exist is in part to be a watchdog. There's only so much that independent media organizations can do, though, without access and without transparency. Um, and Theoretically, an independent investigation should provide that, but time will tell, uh, and Liberty's unwillingness to even reveal details about who the firm is in the first place um, certainly continues to raise a lot of questions. Yeah, it sure does. Well, y'all uh, did some great work. You personally did some great work on that Liberty story, so thanks a lot for that, and uh, and uh, it was um, uh, really interesting to read your accounts. Uh, especially after I had been reporting on that story as well to sort of <laughs> see where my gaps were, if you will. So thanks for filling in uh, some of those gaps. And there's another story I want to pivot to now, uh, Michael, that uh, is another story that both World and Ministry Watch and lots of other organizations, uh, news organizations have covered. And that's the story of Ravi Zacharias, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Again, I think a lot of our listeners are going to know some of the background but just real quickly, uh, back in 2017, uh, Ravi Zacharias was accused of a having an inappropriate relationship with a woman named um, Lorianne Thompson, and specifically uh, uh, was accused of of receiving from Lorianne Thompson um, inappropriate photographs, uh, and uh, that uh, Ravi Zacharias, according to Lorianne Thompson. Um, solicited those photographs and uh, never revealed uh, the nature of the relationship either to his wife or to the ministry. Well, since then, uh, Ravi Zacharias has passed away and new accusations have come to the forefront, specifically that Ravi was the owner of a couple of um, massage spas in the Atlanta area. Those rumors have been swirling around for years Finally, CT, Christianity Today, broke the story, um, naming, or I should say, not naming their sources. And um, World came in behind Christianity Today with what I thought was a much better story. Can you 
tell me, Michael, how the world story came about and what was in the world story that was different and new? Sure. Well, the world story came about um, really just a few weeks ago when um, the accusations or yeah, accusations, I should say, from Lorianne Thompson, the the woman you referred to earlier, um, who had been sending pictures to Robbie Zacharias. Those uh, stories had been out there for a while. Um, it all kind of got brought back up again with Zacharias's death earlier this year. Um, and so that kind of, I think, renewed some of the attention on um, the Thompson's account of what had happened and Ravi Zacharias International Ministries response. And there was a lawsuit involved, all sorts of stuff. Um, but then, I mean, someone that you know and we know, uh, Julie Roy's, um, an independent journalist, published a series of stories a few weeks ago. Um, and she had been in touch with the Thompsons and had done a lot of a lot of on the ground work to try to um, to try to get at the heart of what those accusations were. Um, some of the spa stuff came up in that reporting, but really Christianity Today um, released a story. I guess it was a couple of weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, that as you said. Um, got at some sources whom they did not identify by name, saying that Ravi Zacharias would go into these two spas, um, which he co-owned, and would um, touch them, have them touch him. He would do pretty lewd, inappropriate things, certainly things inappropriate for a married man. So CT reported these these stories with these unnamed women. Well, after Julie Royce had begun reporting some of what she did, we we were looking at the story too, thinking, okay, we really need to we really need to to look into this more and see what's there. Emily Bells, who is a very um, determined, skilled reporter, began trying to contact people um, who knew about some of the accusations regarding the spas, um, searched through business records, and ended up turning up some some contacts, one of whom was a manager for one of those spas that Zacharias owned. And, and she had a, a pretty chilling story about a woman, another therapist, who says that she went into a session with Ravi Zacharias. He supposedly asked her to uh, do something that went far past the massage, and she refused. And Essentially, what happened after that, she filed a complaint with the co-owner of the spa, the man who, who was in business with Ravi Zacharias, and this manager uh, with whom we spoke. And then the next thing that happened was that particular massage therapist ends up getting fired. Um, so Emily had spoken to this the manager, not the woman who was fired, but the manager who was there in all the meetings and all the discussions who fielded the complaint from the particular massage therapist, also ended up talking to a couple other folks who had business dealings with the spa and with Ravi Zacharias, um, really to try to, I mean, CT's reporting was already out there at that point, so we weren't breaking a new story as far as the allegations themselves, but what we were trying to do is trying to contribute something new that either, you know, got at the factual uh, claims of the CT story and, and shed more light on that, or something that would have disproven that. Um, and un, you know, unfortunately, it's sad to say it's a sad story. We we've said this a couple of times, but we don't like doing these sorts of stories. It brings us no joy. Um, but the information that Emily was able to report um, really shed more light on that particular situation. And as a result, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, they've they've opened an investigation into what's going on here. But also the new thing, um, the denomination uh, that Ravi Zacharias was a part of, 
the Christian and Missionary Alliance, has since announced that they are also opening a formal investigation into these particular claims and some others that were swirling around before his death as well. Well, Michael, I want to uh, pause on that story. Just by the way, just for the record, um, our listeners can go to ministrywatch.com, use the search engine to type in Ravi Zacharias's name. All of our stories will show up. Plus, we have linked to the Christianity Today story, the world story that uh, Michael just mentioned uh, by Emily Bells, and also um, the Julie Roy story. So you can find all of that there. But Michael, coming back to you here just for a second, I want to talk a little bit about journalistic ethics and standards. Um, you know, and, and I love Julie. Uh, Julie is a regular partner and collaborator with us here at Ministry Watch. And we, I really appreciate the work that Christianity Today did. I think that they did groundbreaking work here. But the bottom line was they used unnamed sources in their stories. World was the first news organization, and that even includes us, that was able to get some of those folks to be both on the record and have their names attached to uh, what they were saying. Um, And I thought that that was one of the real breakthroughs of Emily's story in World. Um, Were y'all waiting for that? To happen before you would actually print the story, and I guess I mean I hate to I hate to throw either Julie or Christianity Today under the bus, but would you guys have published the stories that they published? That's a great question, and I mean just to cut down the brass tacks on that, no, um, we had some conversations about that internally, and our editor in chief Marvin Alasky, who's really you know pioneered a lot of the the bones into how we operate at World and, and why we operate at World the way we do. Um, we had some forthright conversations about would we publish the Christianity Today story in particular as Christianity Today published that story. And the bottom line for us was no, just because it was based entirely on anonymous sources. And it, it seems like we've had a couple of stories like this this year, Warren. Um, the Ravi Zacharias story is not the only one. There have been some others too that really have hinged on being able to get name sources, people willing to put their names to things. The current environment in which we're in, there's already so much distrust of media um, that we have a couple particular requirements that we're gonna we're going to abide by when it comes to whether or not we're going to allow you know people to go unnamed in a story in which we're breaking some kind of news or hinging a story on some kind of breaking news like this. Um, and those are if someone's life is in danger, if someone's career is in danger. Some of the reporting that we do around the world, particularly in, in East Asia, requires us to protect people's names because their lives are very much at risk. But in other situations, um, it's just not at the stakes aren't quite as high when it comes to not putting a name on a really serious accusation like the one that um, you know these accusations that have come out in the Christianity Today reporting and in our reporting as well and in Julie's too. Well, I appreciate you saying that, Michael, because and again, I don't want to throw either Julie Roy's or Christianity Today under the bus. As it turns out, they were both right. They got the story. Um, but uh, I'm with you and with World on this, is that those were stories that um, we wouldn't have published uh, because the, the sources uh, were not named and they didn't 
you know, there was not an adequate reason for those sources not to be named. In other words, the, neither their lives nor their livelihoods um, were in, in danger. And uh, I, I just think that, you, you know, we took a lot of criticism on social media at, at Ministry Watch for not reporting that story uh, as quickly as um, as others did. But um, I got to tell you, from my point of view, uh, I stand behind that decision, even though it meant in a very competitive environment, we were not <laughs> the ones to be able to break that story. I do, though, uh, think that the cumulative effect of everyone working together, Julie Roy's and Christianity Today and World and Ministry Watch, has um, you know has indeed resulted in, a, in what I think is a good outcome, which is that there is uh, hopefully going to be some measure of justice for the victims of um, sexual abuse here. Absolutely. It, one interesting, you know, caveat to the story too. Emily, Emily and I were talking just before I got on the phone with you, Warren, and she pointed this out. Ravi Zacharias International Ministries was pretty stalwart in denying the claims from Lorianne Thompson and denying the reporting in Christianity Today, but also at the same time um, acknowledge it's going to open an investigation into all these recent accusations and claims that have come out. And at least from an organizational standpoint, and maybe, you know, maybe this is something for folks in your audience to think about as well. Um, but from an organizational standpoint, it, it is kind of an odd position to be in with on one foot to be saying, these aren't true, this didn't happen, we have no reason to believe this happened. But then on the other foot to go ahead and open an investigation. Um, and it really, I mean, I think ministries, particularly Christian ministries, when we are united by the gospel of Jesus Christ, need to keep in mind going forward, um, if wrongdoing does occur, it, it doesn't occur in a vacuum, it doesn't only affect one person, there are people who've been hurt by wrongdoing, um, and when an organization says, on the one hand, we deny this, but on the other hand, yeah, we'll open an investigation, it's kind of like the liberty situation in that it, it raises questions about the sincerity and the um, veracity of whatever investigation results from that. So just just an interesting caveat to this story to watch as, as it goes forward to see what what kind of results come from the investigations that both the Christian and Missionary Alliance are doing and Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Well, I think that's a great point because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of, we, we've also taken some criticism for doing an investigation of Ravi Zacharias after he's dead. Well, people have been saying, well, why not just let the man rest in peace? Well, you raised a great point, Michael, which is that it's not really about Ravi's uh, credibility, Ravi Zacharias anymore. It's about the credibility of of the Christian Missionary Alliance and the credibility of Ravi Zacharias International uh, Ministries. Ravi is beyond our ability to either help or hurt at this point, right? But I think there's a very important and still open question right. about whether the Christian Missionary Alliance denomination and Ravi Zacharias International Ministries are going to exercise integrity and do the right thing here. So I think that's a great point. Well, Michael, we've got to take a break, but when we come back, I want to uh, tread where wise men fear to tread, and that's into the area of politics. I'm Warren Smith. Uh, this week, my guest is Michael Renault with World Magazine. You're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast, and we'll return after this short break. Hello everyone, I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. 
Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Warren Smith uh, with my guest host this week, Michael Renault with World Magazine. Michael, before the break, I mentioned that we were going to be talking politics, and I also said that this is an arena in which wise men fear to tread these days. Uh, and I said that because it seems to me that when it comes to politics, uh, we've become a culture in which only two options are available, and that's affirmation or annihilation. Uh, people are either looking for affirmation of their political views, or they want to annihilate those with whom they disagree, or they want us to, as media outlets do, do the same. A nuanced conversation um, it seems to be harder and harder to find, and I think that's why I was impressed uh, with Leah Hickman's article on Donald Trump and abortion. Can you Tell us about that story and how it came about. Sure. Well, just like every other election, really, for the last 40 years or so, abortion is one of the most important issues, particularly for evangelical Christians, but it's it's important all across the board um, to varying degrees. One of the conversation points for this election is, is the fact that a, a lot of people, a lot of conservatives claim that Donald Trump is the most pro-life president we've ever had. I mean, he, he spoke at the March for Life uh, early this year in Washington, D.C. And, and by the way, he was the first president to speak at that event in person. Other presidents have, have addressed that venue via video or, or web or whatever, but he was the first president to actually be at the event and address it, which, which you know, is notable. But even at that event, a lot of folks were holding up signs that said most pro-life president ever talking about Donald Trump. And so we really wanted to look into that. We wanted to look into those um, claims that, that he was or is the most pro-life president we've ever had. Um, and one of the things that we particularly looked at was a letter that Donald Trump wrote to the pro-life movement in 2016 before he was elected. Now, in that letter, Donald Trump promised four things of the pro-life movement. He promised that he would appoint um, judges to the judiciary who would um, understand the sanctity of life and therefore uh, their take on certain issues from the bench would reflect that. Um, he also promised to sign into law the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act, um, which is to which is supposed to protect unborn babies from abortions if they get to a point where they can feel pain. He pledged to defund Planned Parenthood, uh, and he also pledged to make the Hyde Amendment permanent. How did he do on those four promises? Well, of those four, I mean, one of the things, and we've done reporting on this too, at the federal level, uh, Donald Trump has appointed more than 200 judges to fill vacancies. Um, and we wrote a story earlier this year, shining light on that and outlining that. And by and large, those judges have already had a big effect when it comes to pro-life laws that are coming about in different parts of the country. He obviously has appointed so far Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. 
as we speak, Amy Coney Barrett is preparing for a week of um, hearings. Those will be interesting to watch. So that's three potential Supreme Court justice seats that he has filled in his first four years. But those other three things um, he really has not done. Those have gone... um, I mean, those promises in particular have gone unfulfilled in Trump's first four years in office. Now, as you said earlier, Warren, there's nuance here. This is not necessarily a black and white issue. These things that we're talking about are legislative issues. The president of the United States sits at the top of the executive branch. He cannot write laws. But so often what happens is a president is the person who leads the charge when it comes to building consensus in the Congress. Typically, a president is the one to, in many cases, especially the the very difficult cases, um, to bring lawmakers of both parties together in the Oval Office or wherever and try to forge a way forward to accomplish his goals. And sometimes that means compromising to accomplish the other party's goals, too. But Donald Trump just really hasn't made much of an effort on these other three issues. Um, And so we wanted to examine you know, how could those have gone different ways? How could Donald Trump have used some of his biggest platforms? We pointed out in the story, Leah did a great job reporting the story, but we pointed out in in the story that one of Donald Trump's biggest megaphones is Twitter. And she actually went back and did some analysis. Um, And in the 22 months between Trump's inauguration in 2017 and the midterm elections, Trump tweeted on an average eight times a day, more than 5,500 times. Um, And in the context of abortion, Trump tweeted about life fewer than 10 times in that time span. Um, And he only used the word abortion once, and the word unborn never appeared. And this is a president who he's fired people via Twitter. He's he's started international dust-ups via Twitter. He's announced his policy agenda going forward via Twitter. Twitter is kind of a a window into his mind, as Leah put it. And um, it's a it's an avenue uh, he has not chosen to use when it comes to fighting for the unborn and fighting for these, in particular, these three things that have gone unfulfilled from his 2016 promises. Well, it's a great story. I, I think uh, very helpful to those of us who are trying to make up our mind about the uh, 2020 presidential campaign. So I really appreciate Leah and World for that story. I want to pivot to another story. We mentioned uh, Emily Bell's story about Robbie Zacharias in the last segment, Michael. Emily did another really fascinating story, again, that had political connotations about QAnon. In fact, you guys put that story on the cover, which um, I thought um, uh, took some real courage. First of all, why did you decide to dive into that story in a big way, put it on the cover? What kind of feedback have you gotten? Well, we've gotten quite a bit of feedback on that, and some of it's been positive, and we've we've been told by some readers they've canceled their subscriptions because we took a critical view of QAnon and the whole situation. We went that route because earlier this year, QAnon got a lot of attention um, because of an Atlantic cover story. Um, in, in which a writer really unpacked what QAnon is. And, and for those who may not be as familiar with it, QAnon is is kind of, I mean, it really is a conspiracy theory, but it's, it's built around um, a community online who claim that um, Donald Trump is probably at the center of trying to unwind this huge satanic cabal of 
human trafficking rings and one world government um, sorts of goings on and that the deep state is all part of this and that that Donald Trump is the man at the center who's trying to undo all of that. There is one person referred to as Q who posts these cryptic messages in these um, message channels and these platforms um, trying to make predictions about what's going to happen. It really all started in 2017 when he was making predictions about Hillary Clinton being arrested uh, because she was at the center of a, of a human sex trafficking ring. Of course, that did not end up being the case. It is not true. But what we find in the climate that we're living in right now, people distrust the media, which is not without reason, not without cause. Um, people distrust medical experts. And this year with the coronavirus and COVID-19, there have been so many times that, um, you know, medical knowledge has shown that it's it's not quite what we think it is in some of these cases. But there's there's polarization and division on so many issues. I think it's all coalesced to make um, these conditions such that, that people buy into the QAnon conspiracies. What we looked at was the fact that uh, Christians, churches, ministries, nonprofits, really right now have not figured out the best ways to help Christians in particular um, who have fallen deep into QAnon stuff. And it's not just that QAnon is a conspiracy theory uh, in and of itself. It's really It really has kind of cultish um, aspects to it, where you've got this leader, Q, Anytime he makes a prediction that's not true, there's some kind of rationalization that accounts for it. Oh, he we, he knew that people were on his trail, so he's just trying to throw other people off by making this by making this particular point that didn't turn out to be true. And so we wanted to look at whether or not Christians were having any success in helping brothers and sisters in Christ um, come out of QAnon. And one of the things that we found was that one of the most important parts of that, which we've all been deprived of to some degree this year because of the COVID nineteen um, shutdowns and lockdowns, is Entry into a community of of believers, of brothers and sisters, a local church or or others that they can come in and do life with, and step away from the keyboard, step step away from the virtual world in which a lot of the QAnon stuff um, thrives and persists in, and get back into scripture, get back into what's happening in real life with with real people around you. Well, I'm really glad you guys did that story. I mean, I think my first reaction, Michael, whenever I saw that big. Uh, red cover of world and the big fat black Q on the cover was, you know, why are you guys doing this story? Because, you know, it's a fringe movement. Let it, let it die for lack of oxygen, so to speak. But, uh, but you know, the fact that you guys really made, I think a powerful case that a lot of Christians are getting sucked into the QAnon movement and, um, you know, reporting about it and helping people understand it and and find an antidote to it, which, as you said, was true real Christian community, is a um, is an is an important service. So I, I really appreciate that story uh, and uh, just want to thank you guys for doing it, Michael. I want to close the, our time together today uh, by talking briefly about the Hope Award uh, for Effective Compassion. We've talked about so much bad news. I'd like to <laughs> kind of end on a good news note. Uh, this time of year is what I. Um, even when I was working at World Magazine years ago, I used to call the Hope Award season uh, because you guys go through kind of a long process of, uh, of publishing stories in the magazine and letting people vote and then ultimately unveiling the grand prize winner. Uh, 
tell me about the process and where you guys are in that process right now. Sure. Well, we uh, published stories about our Hope Award finalists for this year. That was also in the September 26th issue of our magazine. And we've aired feature stories also on our daily podcast, The World and Everything in It. Um, essentially, the Hope Awards for Effective Compassion are it's our contribution, I guess you could say, world's contribution to trying to shine a spotlight on ministries and organizations that are truly trying to help people pull themselves out of poverty, pull themselves out of addiction. We're trying to shine a spotlight on organizations that are not just trying to give people handouts, um, but one of the common denominators that Marvin Alasky wrote about um, is that the winners are offering challenging personal and spiritual help to people in need. Now, the the pandemic threw things off track this year. We were a little bit later doing this because we didn't want our reporters going into places that were not going to be safe or, you know, traveling through airports or rental car kiosks when the, the pandemic was sort of at its height earlier this year. But we dispatched two reporters, Carissa Coe and Anna Johansson, um, to go visit several ministries doing this, particularly on the East Coast. And from those, we drew four finalists from the U.S. and one finalist from Malaysia, which helps Muslim refugees. Um, and readers can, or your, sorry, your audience can go to wng.org slash compassion to read those stories that profile each of these ministries. And until October 17th, um, anybody can go vote to pick their winner. Now, all these finalists are going to get a $2,000 prize that hopefully will help them in their missions, help them do the good work that they're doing. But whoever, whichever ministry receives the most votes also gets a $10,000 grand prize. And we also hope, too, that the, the, the brighter spotlight on these ministries um, helps them, helps them get some exposure, and helps people get invested and get involved in, if not these particular ministries, but similar organizations, maybe in their own backyard too. Well, it's a great program, and I know you guys have been doing it pretty close to twenty years now. Is that is is that isn't that right? Yeah, we're getting up there. So and it's it's a great program. Uh, again, WNG.org, that stands for World News Group, WNG.org, slash compassion, and you can uh, read the profiles of the finalists and vote on the one that you think deserves the grand prize. So, Michael, we've got to uh, bring our time to a close. I, again, just want to remind everybody, uh, the World website, I just said it, but I'll say it again, WNG.org for World News Group, and you'll be able to see all of the stories that uh, Michael and I have discussed today. If you want to find out more about Ministry Watch and our coverage of some of the same issues that we've been discussing, you can go to ministrywatch.com. A couple of housekeeping items before we go. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, if you want to rate this program, you can do that on, on your podcast app. I read all of the comments that are there. The way the podcast apps work, I don't have an opportunity to respond there, but please know that I do read them, and uh, it's a great way that I get better and that the show gets better. So we really appreciate all the comments that um, are showing up on the app. Uh, also, if you are don't know how to kind of manage the app, uh, it might be a little too complicated uh, for you technologically, just tell a friend about the program. And um, uh, we would be really grateful for that word of mouth support of the program as well. I also want to mention that both World and Ministry Watch are donor supported. You can go to our respective websites and you'll see a donate button on the front page of both of our websites. We would uh, encourage you to make financial contributions to make sure that the kind of journalism that we've been talking about today 
continues. And one final note before we go, uh, we are going to be doing a webinar here at Ministry Watch called How to Read a Form 990. A Form 990 is the tax form that all nonprofits have to file with the Department of Treasury, the Internal Revenue Service each year, at least those that are not churches. And um, I think that every donor should look at a Form 990 before they give money to a Christian ministry. So we're going to do a little one-hour webinar uh, instruction on how to find Form 990s and how to read Form 990s. Uh, You can find out more about that webinar, which, by the way, will take place on October the 28th, that's a couple of weeks from now, uh, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, October 28th, how to read a Form 990 by going to the Ministry Watch website. That's uh, ministrywatch.com. So, Michael, thanks for being on today's program. Really appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me, Warren. Always a pleasure. You know, I always worry whether we'll have enough to talk about, it, and then I find that we end up going <laughs> much longer than uh, than I thought we would. So it's really uh, great to hear from you and uh, all the great stuff that's happening at World. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Steve Gandy, and we get database technical and editorial support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, and Christina Darnell, as well as Casey Suddeth. I'm Warren Smith, along with my co-host this week, Michael Renault, and you've been listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.